begin by telling you about a man called Stephen Lungu. Stephen uh, is the eldest son of a teenage mother and he's from a township in Zimbabwe and his mother uh, was trapped in fact in a very difficult marriage to a man about 20 years older than her and she dealt with her struggles her painful life by drinking heavily and then one day when Stephen was three years old his mum took him and his baby brother and sorry his older brother and baby sister into town and she said to them I just need to go to the loo and she left them there um, in this busy town square and there he was and his uh, little brother was playing with him on the ground uh, two hours later she had not returned and she'd actually run away couldn't cope any longer so she left these uh, three children young children in the care of a reluctant aunt and by the age of 11 Stephen had run away as well from his situation preferring to live on the streets to living with his auntie and uh, as he grew up Stephen developed a really strong bitterness towards God as a teenager he was recruited into one of the urban gangs called the Black Shadows which carried out violent robberies and vandalism around the streets of Harare in Zimbabwe and when a traveling evangelist came to town to speak to thousands of people about Jesus in this huge tent in town, Stephen went along with the intention of firebombing the event. He carried in with him a bag full of incendiary devices. He wanted to attack this event because he hated God. And as he waited for the moment to attack in the meeting, uh, Shadrach Molaka, He's a South African evangelist. He took to the stage and he announced to everybody that the Holy Spirit had warned him that many people in this audience may die very soon without Christ. And uh, astonished at this, the other black shadows who were there ran off thinking that the police had intercepted their plan. But Stephen stayed. And he was just captivated by the preacher that evening. And the speaker's words convinced him about his sins. And it drew him into an encounter with Jesus. And he experienced God's presence. And he was just filled with God's grace and peace. And Stephen, at the end of the meeting, he staggered towards the stage. And he grabbed hold of the speaker's feet. And he just began to sob and sob and sob. And that evening, he became a follower and a disciple of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what happened next, because there's not one, but two twists to the story. I'll tell you a little bit about that uh, at the end of my talk. But I start with that because it's a modern-day example of where we left off last Sunday. So if you were here then, you'll remember, you might remember that we left Jesus partying at Matthew's house with a pretty colorful crowd of people. People with a very shady past, people with a very dodgy present, people with a bad reputation, and all of them 
uh, alienated from the synagogue. And at this event at Matthew's house, there's these self-righteous do-gooders known as the Pharisees. And they see all this going on and they thoroughly disapprove of the company that Jesus is keeping. And they say to him, why are you eating and drinking with sinners? What do you think you are doing, Jesus, having a good time with this low-life scum? What will the neighbors think? You're a rabbi. We don't think this is a very good look for you. And as we travel through the Gospel of Matthew together, we're going to see that the gap between Jesus on the one hand and the religion of his day on the other just gets wider and wider with each chapter. So what starts as a curiosity and a novelty for them, seeing this new preacher, Jesus, in town, who seems to have miraculous powers, becomes increasingly, in their eyes, an irritation and a nuisance and a defiance of their authority. And this clash, it really is a clash between the new and transformational Jesus and the old and impotent and dead religion is the dominant theme of the passage we're going to look at today. And here's what it says in Matthew 9, 14 to 26. Now, then John's disciples, so this is John the Baptist, uh, they came and asked Jesus, how is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he is with them? The time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, then they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. Neither do people put new wine into old wineskins. If they do, the skins will burst, the wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved." While he was saying this, a synagogue leader came and knelt before him and said, My daughter has just died, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. Jesus got up and went with him and so did his disciples. Just then, a woman who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years came up behind him and touched the edge of his cloak. She said to herself, if I only touch his cloak, I will be healed. Jesus turned and saw her. Take heart, daughter, he said. Your faith has healed you. And the woman was healed at that moment. When Jesus entered the synagogue leader's house and saw the noisy crowd and people playing pipes, he said, go away. The girl is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took the girl by the hand, and she got up. News of this spread through all that region. So, Lord, as we come to engage with your word again this morning, we pray that you will speak to us, minister to us, Lord, increase our faith, increase our love for you, 
as we share together. In Jesus' name, Lord. Amen. Amen. So this uh, tense uh, standoff between Jesus and the religious powers that be leads in verse 14 to a question from John the Baptist's followers. John the Baptist, we met him in chapter 3. He's a guy who wears coarse clothes. He has a rudimentary diet, locusts and honey. He lives out in the wild, sleeps rough. He's a proper, rugged kind of guy, John the Baptist. And he puts himself through no end of inconvenience for God. And they come to Jesus and they say, why aren't you a bit more like John? You know, religion should be about sobriety and self-denial. You don't seem to take it seriously, Jesus. It's all parties and having a good time with you. doesn't feel right to us. Well, John's disciples really know how to take the fun out of fundamentalism. But tellingly, they don't seem to really know why they fast. How is it, they ask, that we and the disciples, sorry, and the Pharisees fast often? Why is that? And typically, for ultra-religious people, they engage in all kinds of pious activities and repetitive rituals, and they don't have the first idea why they do it. Now, the law of Moses only legislated for one fast a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. But John's disciples and the Pharisees are so earnest, they are so devout, that they go way beyond what Scripture calls for, and they make a regular rule of it. The Pharisees do too. They brag to everyone, the Pharisees, how they fast twice a week. Twice a week, that's a hundred times a year. That's a hundred times more than the Bible says you need to. Oh, how holy these people are. Does it bring them closer to the Lord? Does it make them godlier? Does it make them more prayerful people? Does it produce the fruit of the Spirit in them? Does it produce joy and patience and kindness in their lives? Or does it just make them look holy and make everybody else feel small? So why doesn't Jesus go in for this uh, austere way of life? And Jesus responds uh, in verse 15 to this question by talking about weddings. Went to a wedding last month. Our youngest son, Ben, there he is, <coughs> marrying the beautiful and intelligent and very gifted Emma. And there they are leaving the church under a hail of confetti. What a Lovely day. Easily the happiest day of my year so far. Great occasion. Now, first century Jewish weddings, this was a great wedding, but first century Jewish weddings were in a totally different league. They absolutely rocked first century Jewish weddings. It was open house for the whole village. There were no invitations because everybody was invited by default. It was just free for all comers. And the whole shebang was paid for by the bridegroom's family. I'm glad that tradition has gone. Uh, got three boys. Uh, and it was immense fun, Jewish first century wedding, eating and drinking and live entertainment, hilarity, laughter, dancing through the night, 
It was wild. And it lasted for days on end, often a whole week. And it was special, you know? Such feasting and merrymaking would be a really rare experience for poor people. What a fantastic picture that is of the kingdom that Jesus brings. And Jesus hints here, we can, we can save the tears for Good Friday. That's going to happen. But for now, with life-changing healings and deliverance and forgiveness, this is no time for hair, shirts, and flagellation. This is a time for rejoicing. Jesus is here. Now, sometimes the things that Jesus talks about uh, give you a, a whole window onto his living standards. And verse 16 here is a really good example of that. He says, Nobody sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment, for the patch will pull away from the garment, making the tear worse. See, people who had money just threw their old clothes away and replaced them with new ones. But the poor had to make do and mend. So Jesus knew from experience that new material patched onto old clothes was just going to shrink in the wash and then pull on the tear, making it worse than before, making it worse than it started. But Jesus isn't giving us a needlework lesson here, much as we might like one. What's he actually talking about? What's he saying to us here? He's saying that he has not come to just patch up the old religion of do this and do that. He's actually bringing something totally new and, in fact, completely incompatible with the religion of works. It's incompatible. They don't mix. See, people categorize people as a religious leader, but Jesus is not religious at all. Religion is like me turning around to my children when they were young and saying to them, Okay, kids, listen up. This is really important. I'm going to tell you some things which are really important to me. So you better be taking notes, okay? Rule number one, you tidy your bedroom to an immaculate standard every day. Got that? Rule number two, you get top grades at school, A's and A stars only. Rule number three, you do not answer me back. Rule number four, you clean your teeth three times a day after every meal. And if you obey these four simple rules, then I will be your daddy. And if you fail at any point to follow these rules, I will not love you anymore and I will leave you. That's what religion is like. And my kids always knew, at least I know they did, that they could, in theory, have the mother of all water balloon fights in the house they could put scrambled eggs in my bed. They could make paper airplanes out of all the pages of my precious books. They could write swear words with tomato ketchup all over the kitchen walls. And to be fair, they knew I would not be all that happy about it. And there would be consequences that would really spoil their day if they did. But they knew, crucially, that I would never, ever stop loving them or stop being their daddy because... They did these things. But Jesus wants to make absolutely sure here that people understand the difference between him and religion. So he talks about wine and wineskins. Right, in those days, they didn't have bottles. 
for wine, they used goat skins. Uh, and they, they did that because goat skins have two important qualities. Number one, they're watertight. And number two, they stretched with age. Because when wine ferments, it goes all bubbly, the sugar turns to alcohol, it expands, and so the receptacle that it's in has to expand as well, otherwise it bursts and you lose your wine. Now a new wineskin, this is like the one on the left, the lighter color wineskin, it's quite elastic, it's quite supple, so it doesn't matter that the fermentation process stretches the skin. But as the skin stretches, and the, the darker colored ones at the front, they're already stretched. As it stretches, it becomes more brittle until there's no more give in it. And if you put the new wine in one of those, it will burst open, it will explode. So here's the point, what he's talking about. It means this, the Pharisees with their old religion are like those dark, fully stretched wineskins. They're used, their hearts have grown hard and inflexible and they are now resistant actually to the new wine the new thing that Jesus brings now the law of Moses that the Pharisees love so much is actually very good this is the confusing thing for us it's God's word the Old Testament uh, the Old Testament is like an MRI scan that shows us that we have heart disease. It shows us we've got a problem and we need God. And the Old Testament, the law of Moses, it's vital for an accurate diagnosis of our spiritual condition. But a scan, helpful as it is, can only tell you what's wrong with you. It cannot make you better. And unfortunately, we need more than just a heart scan spiritually. We need a heart transplant. MRI scans cannot operate on you with a scalpel and make you healthy again. Spiritually, we need open heart surgery. And that's what Jesus came to do, to give us new hearts, to take away our hearts of stone and to give us a heart of flesh. Are you going to let Jesus soften your heart this morning? Change cold hearts, hearts of stones for a warm, generous heart of flesh. That's what he wants to do in every one of us every day. Well, you know what it's like when you're busy explaining something really important and suddenly someone interrupts you. It's a bit annoying, isn't it? Welcome to Jesus's world. Just as Jesus is busy getting this really important teaching across, somebody butts in and tells him, that his little girl is terribly unwell. If you've ever been a parent to a very sick child, you know just how worrying it is. You can't think, you can't sleep. You just feel, you just feel sick with anxiety, don't you? So we really feel for this synagogue leader, don't we? Matthew doesn't name him, but Mark and Luke tell us that he's called Jairus. Jairus. His little girl has been ill for some time. As much as they worry, nothing changes. He gets a second opinion. He gets a third opinion. Why her? 
Why us? What's wrong with her? Why isn't she getting any better? Why can't the doctors fix her? Why isn't God answering my prayers? Why this silence from heaven? And as he watches her getting weaker and weaker and paler and paler and thinner and thinner, all the life is draining out of her. He just feels hopeless. It's no good. Nothing is working. There's nothing I can do now. And Jairus finally decides to go to Jesus and ask him to intervene. It's his last hope, but it's also his best hope. Why do we so often turn to Jesus last of all? Well, by the time he gets to Jesus, finally gets there, she's dead. And it seems to be all over. What, after all, is more final than death? But amazingly, Jairus says in verse 18, but come and put your hand on her and she will live. What faith. That is just amazing faith in this man. And Jesus, of course, agrees to go and see her. But yet again, he gets interrupted once more on the way. And this time, it's a woman with a gynecological complaint. She must be low on iron. She must be anemic. She must be exhausted. Her menstrual bleeding never stops. And Matthew says it's been going on 12 years. 12 years. Just think of the fatigue, the attrition, the sense of being drained and ground down by this illness. And worse still, it's a condition in her world that pushes her to the margins of society. People avoid her. People think they might contaminate her, make them unclean. But she says to herself, if I just touch the edge of his clothing, I will be free from my suffering. And she pushes through the crowd and she does. She touches the corner of his robe where the prayer tassels hang down. And again, it's just a moment of incredible faith. And both expressions of faith from Jairus and from this woman is in such stark contrast to the formalism of sterile religion. We fast twice a week, you know. Religion says, perhaps God will love me if I just measure up a little bit better. But faith says, no, God loves me so much already. Because the Bible says so. That's how I know it. The Bible says God demonstrates his love for us, demonstrates it in this while we were still sinners. Still sinners, that means while we were still all over the place in life. <clears throat> when our lives were a mess, think about your life as low as it's ever been, as bad as it's ever been. That was the point at which Christ died for us. Religion says, maybe if I do well enough and become a better person, then God will love me. That's like saying, if I can make myself clean enough, maybe I could earn the right to have a shower. It's all the wrong way around. Faith says, no, the shower is waiting. It's a gracious gift of God. I just come as I am. God already does love me. And this woman's faith here teaches 
a profound lesson for us. And it's this, you can be near Jesus, near him all your life, but keep a safe distance, but never reach out, never really reach out and touch the Lord in faith. Is today the day where you reach out, come out from the shadows, reach out and touch Jesus in faith? Is today the day? Well, by the time Jesus gets to Jairus' house, news of the little girl's death has spread. Uh, in our culture, we have a dignified silence, a minute silence. We have discreet wiping away the tears when someone dies. But that was seen in Jesus' culture as terribly disrespectful and bad-mannered. And what they did there, they had loud and emotional wailing. That's what you did in the Middle East. Uh, and tragically, as we've seen this week in the news, it still is what they do in the Middle East when someone dies. So Jesus arrives and there's all, all this racket going on. There's these uh, mourners who are wailing and howling around Jairus' house. They're beating their breasts. They're pouring dust on their heads. And they're playing mournful dirges on clay pipes. And in those days and in that uh, land, you hired people to do this. And that's why they stop crying so quickly and begin to laugh when Jesus says, verse 24, go away. The girl is not dead, but just asleep. With Jesus, it's never hopeless. However bad it seems, it's never hopeless. There is promise, there is power, there is possibility for grace to break in and change everything because it's Jesus. So if you feel utterly powerless, utterly without hope, if you feel anxious and afraid and confused or bewildered, and some of you might well feel that way today, try and look at your problem from Jesus' point of view. Try and see your life through Jesus' eyes. It's just an amazing view, amazing perspective. It's a great view. Jesus simply goes to the girl, verse 25, takes her by the hand and lifts her up. The noisy crowd outside Jairus' house thought it was all over. It's never too late ever to ask the Lord to do something new in your life. And when it seems too late for everybody, everybody else to help, the Lord can change everything with a word, one word. So name a situation in your life that looks totally hopeless to you, over which you've lost hope, lost perspective. It's not hopeless for God. Nothing is impossible for God, nothing. He just says a word, and vast galaxies, light years across, with billions of stars just spin into being from nowhere, and all of it made from nothing. That's what God does. And he brings healing in broken relationships that seem beyond repair. And indeed are beyond repair without a miracle from God. He brings release from addiction. We sang it this morning. Where all rehabilitation programs fail, he brings forgiveness and restoration that heal the deepest and most painful 
emotional scars. And I began by talking about Stephen Lungu from Zimbabwe. And I said I'd finish by telling you what happened next. Here's what happened next. The morning after he gave his life to Christ, Stephen presented himself at the local police station. He said, I'm a member of the Black Shadows, former member now. He confessed all his crimes. It's a long list. And the desk sergeant looked at this long charge sheet of all the things he'd confessed. He listened to his story, how he'd given his life to Christ, how he was a changed man, and he released him without charge. And he got on a bus that morning in the city of Harare, packed with commuters going to work. And Stephen felt so happy, so free, so released, that he started to tell all the other passengers on the bus about what had just happened in his life. And ever since that time, he's actually become an evangelist now. He just goes all around the south of Africa telling people about Jesus. And at an event a few years ago, he was preaching in town somewhere. A woman came forward wanting to know Jesus. She wanted to be converted. She wanted to give her life to Christ, have a new start. Turned out it was his own mother who had abandoned him all those years ago. And she just came forward in a flood of tears and they were reconciled. This is Jesus. This is amazing grace. Again, we sang it this morning. The songs this morning were perfect. This is hope for the hopeless. This is what Jesus always did. And it's what Jesus still does.